damn ye! Let Neptune strike ye dead, Winslow. Hark! Hark, Triton, hark! Bellow! Bid our father the Sea King rise from the depths full of foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with pungent slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bile and brime and scream no more only when he crown in his cockle shells with slithering tentacle tail and a steaming beard take up his fell befitted arm. His coral tine trident screeches banshee-like in the tempest and plunges right through your gut, bursting ye. A bulging blackguard no more, but a blasted bloody film now and nothing for the harpies and the souls of dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself. Forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten to even the sea, for any stuff for part of Winslow, even any scantly on your soul is Winslow no more. But it is now itself the sea. Heave away, bullies, you perish rig bums. Way, hey, roll and go. go. Take your hands from your pockets and don't suck your thumbs. To be rollicking randy dandy yo. Hello, and welcome <laughs> to the Swift Shift. For those who don't know, those are the ravings of William Defoe in the lighthouse, done pr pretty pretty badly uh, by <laughs> your your co-host Zachary Brown. I'm with Cafe Content, and with me, as always, the Watcher of the Watchmen, Sean Swift is his name. How you doing, Sean? I I'm pretty good. I was just thinking that. Uh... If you got stuck with Willem Dafoe in a lighthouse, I think he would win that, that <laughs> duel. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I would probably not win that undertaking. Man, what a performance in that movie. And we will definitely, oh. definitely get to it. How you been, Sean? How's, how's, uh, how's the filmmaker's life? Oh man, it's it's been busy the last few weeks. So I've been more so working at the Alamo Draft House uh, recently. And uh, one thing, so I've been there most of the time. I've had like one day off in the past couple of weeks. So I've been enjoying yesterday and today. But what I one thing I did get to do uh, was work with the Austin Film Festival last week. I got to run. Uh, projection for a few days with them and stuff like that so that was super cool that was a lot of fun i bet that was really fun do you work with uh, specific filmmakers because i bet some of them have a specific way they want their film seen so for the most part i did not like one of the films that i screened the filmmakers had already gone back to europe that's where they were from and so they they'd already left uh one of them I did get to it was uh, it was an Egyptian filmmaker and I was screening his movie and so we did the sound check and it was a very like music infused film and so he like wanted to turn the bass of the music up almost like it was a concert you were going to uh, unfortunately the place that I was running the projection from was like it's kind of like a little coffee shop down in downtown Austin that has like a little uh, screening theater kind of in the back. And so, you know, their sound was, you know, it was as good as it could be, but you know, he, I, I don't know that he was totally thrilled, but he was fine with it. I mean, you know, I told him I turned it up as loud as I could go with it. And, and he said that it sounded good, but so that was pretty interesting to like, just 
have that sort of conversation back and forth with him and the producer and the writer. Uh, we're all there. And That's so really I, cool. I like yeah. that collaborative nature of it. Yeah. So it was, and it was a great movie. Like all the stuff that I got to screen was, like, I was just like, holy cow. Like it, it was, there were some really great films in the festival this year. So I, I was really thrilled to be a part of it. I was going to ask you, did you get, did you have some time to screen movies? I, for two, for a couple of weeks before the festival itself, I would go over to their main office and just like screen movies uh, and make sure that like the sound was good. The video was good, that everything was. You're uh, so lucky. That's awesome. up. Yeah, it was cool. And uh, so I did that. And then for the festival itself, I was trying to think, I saw a couple of the movies that I'd seen before. And then I saw quite a few that I had not seen, like the Egyptian one. Uh, I had not seen uh, before I went to screen it. So it was cool. It was, it was very, it was just a lot of fun. It was cool to just, you know, to be in that kind of atmosphere and, and be on the other side of it. You know, most of the times when I've been in festivals, it's been me like presenting a movie and whatnot. And so it was very cool to be on the other side of it, to see how, to see how many people uh, work together to like make something like that to see the other filmmakers come and get to have their moment in the spotlight with you know some great work that they've made so it was a lot of fun I was, I was really happy to be a part of it and, and hope that I can do it again next year I'm sure they, I'm sure they will did you now are these national films like kind of the Toronto Film Festival where you see these movies that are going to be released later on or are these mostly independent smaller films uh there's both so the stuff that i personally screened was the smaller stuff some of them that are like looking you know they're going they're doing the festival circuit now sort of looking for distribution uh but then they had uh the new like terrence malick film screened over there uh so they there if you go to downtown austin there's the paramount theater which is a pretty big theater and then there's the state theater uh that's pretty big and so that's where they would screen like the bigger, bigger movies that are, you know, coming out later this month on Netflix or next month or, or whatever. And then where I was at was like, you know, some of the short films and then, like I said, uh, a couple of films from overseas. And so and they're kind of going around now all over the place The you know, the uh, filmmaker from Egypt was saying that they had just played in China, that they were, I think were going to Canada or had played in Canada. They were here. So, I mean, he, you know, he's really he's kind of going all over the place with it. And uh, one of the things that they mentioned was that they were trying to find uh, some distribution. So it was, it was pretty neat. I've spent, I spent October really my uh, movie consumption has, I'm not a big horror film person, but I wanted to find something. I wanted to really do some, some searching and see, you know, what I liked in the horror movies. Sure. I, I, tr I tried the witch. I've had that recommended to me multiple times. Got maybe about halfway into it and stopped watching it, which the people who recommended to me was like, I don't know what you want from me, Zach. Um, <laughs> because people say that's like a great horror film and it just didn't capture my imagination, capture that little, like that feeling of not being secure in your own house that I want in a horror movie, you know? Yeah. So then I watched the apostle on netflix have you seen this i have that's the gareth evans i believe it's gareth evans or gareth edwards uh about the cult yes yes it's Love a cult it. they're living in a different land um 
and you know to try not to spoil anything they worship a a different god and you you kind of get to that in the middle of the film and yeah. i was worried everything that i had heard about the film was like guts and gore like it's just going to be you're from beginning to end it's kind of like hostile it's just going to be guts and gore and i was oh, yeah. i guess because i had that expectation i was pleasantly surprised that you know there is some guts and gore especially towards the end um, but really, yeah. this is a psychological um, horror movie where you don't know exactly what's going on. And those are the type of movies that, that kind of set you on edge, set you, uh, you're unbalanced. I, I, I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that one quite a bit myself. And I'm, uh, I'm disappointed to hear you didn't like The Witch because The Witch is like one of my favorite horror movies of the last decade. <laughs> like I, I loved that movie. I think you should give it, give it the uh, old college try and see it through to the end. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> um, and then my final horror movie I saw, Eli, which is the new uh, horror movie that Netflix is promoting right now. Did you? I know you hadn't seen it when we talked last. Did you get a chance I've... to see it or at least see the trailer? I've seen the trailer. I've not gotten around to seeing the film itself. Uh, and it's kind of like, I'm kind of the opposite with that one where like a lot of people recommended the witch, the stuff that I've seen and heard have not been as great about Eli. So I was kind of like, well, you know, I'll, I'll check it out eventually. Skip but, it. You know, well, skip I don't want to skip it. I, oh, really? Okay. You're, you're telling me to skip it. So okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just you've got better things to do with two two hours of your time. It's not great. It's not horrible. I could see being really scared and being shocked by the ending at when I was fourteen. But uh, sure. it was, you know, it's just neither here nor there. And who's got the time to be neither here nor there when you've got so much stuff to consume, so much content going on right now? You know. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We are going to talk about three pieces of content that we consumed over the past month that really take swings. I think really take some swings at material um, and we'll talk about whether or not they actually get to where they're going. Um, the three pieces of content, besides that, they might ha have nothing in common. <laughs> the first uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is the Watchmen TV series. This is on HBO created by Damian Lindelof, based on the Watchmen comic, of course. The second thing we're going to talk about is Dolomite Is My Name, yes. the new Eddie Murphy vehicle. Yeah. And then the last thing we're going to talk about, maybe forever, maybe be the <laughs> last thing that you and I ever discuss, is The Lighthouse. <laughs> A movie just out starring William Defoe and yeah. Robert Pattinson. And we're we're actually in a lighthouse right now recording right. this just exactly. to really get in the mood. And before we did this, I actually got into a battle with a seagull. So we'll see how this goes. Oh, I oh I, I hope you did not kill that seagull, John. I hope you didn't kill it. <laughs> Why? What's wrong? What's wrong with killing a seagull? <laughs> Chapter one. Paging Dr. Manhattan. I once was lost. Now 
So, Sean, you brought this up for us to discuss on the podcast. I'd love to know, give me your first impressions of it. Give me what you think about the TV series, because in my mind, this might not match up to your interests. Really? Okay. So, I, I'm obviously a fan of the Alan Moore comic book, the graphic novel. Uh, it's one that I've read several times. And then when the movie came out, I, I think I am one of the few that really loved the movie. Uh, I've actually got like the big Watchmen, like ultimate cut box set. That's got like, it's got the ultimate cut and the director's cut. It's like, it's like 20 hours of Watchmen footage. And you know, it's just like, which cut do you want to watch? <laughs> so I, I was a, I, I'm a big fan of the movie. And so when I heard that they were doing a show, I was naturally like, okay, cool. Like, you know, is it going to be, the movie just done with new actors and and show format. And so to set it up, it's essentially 30 years after the movie. So in, in set up, they set up this world where to be a, a vigilante superhero is now illegal. And we're three episodes into it now. And I am absolutely transfixed on it. I, I cannot, I'm kind of surprised at how good I've found it to be so far. It's very similar to the film in a lot of ways, like the way that it looks, the you know, the some of the words like coming up on the screen behind characters and stuff like that. But it's very much its own thing. You know, there's like little Easter eggs and hints of characters from the film. And there's there is one character who is from the film who's in the show. But essentially it's it's all new characters kind of in this in this new story and so thus far with three episodes in i cannot wait to see uh, where they take it i've been very pleasantly surprised at how good it is so far yeah the big word that people are using about the tv show is that it's a remix that lindelof kind of took the comic book as inspiration didn't separate himself from the movie too far and i enjoyed the movie as well though mm. you know i didn't get the box set and you know start creating a shrine to it or anything well like that. i mean it's hey. your life not mine <laughs> <laughs> um and i am intrigued by the tv show intrigued by what they're trying to do and mostly confused sure because yeah because i don't know all the details and i think there are more than one character from the comic book in the tv show right so we've seen at least seen dr manhattan he's everybody's saying he's on mars we've seen like a newsreel of him creating a castle on mars and then letting it drop correct jeremy irons plays adrian veit yep who i i believe was an original watchman or he was an original like bad guy he was like a, a villain in the, yeah, um, so he was he was one of the original uh, Watchmen uh, who essentially tried to wipe out mankind in order to like rebuild the world. Okay, that was, that was kind of what in the film. That's what his character was there to do, and his character was played uh, by it's Ozzy Mandias is the is the superhero. It's Adrian Veidt. Ozzy Mandias was played by Matthew Good, and so in the film. That was sort of his sort of goal was he was going to try to just kill off mankind and, and like have the world start anew. And of course, 
uh, he gets stopped by the other Watchmen and Dr. Manhattan before Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars. Gotcha. There are, I'm sure, a lot of like secondary texts and other podcasts that can really get into the nitty gritty of the comic book and how everything connects. But what intrigues me about this TV show, Sean, is their use of race relations to push the the plot and the mysteries of the TV show further. So the beginning of the TV show, we see the, the Black Street riot or the really just the Black Street murdering, which is a true event that happened in history. And they use it as a way to set the setting of the of the TV show, kind of where every, everybody is angsty. There have been granted from the Black Street mm-hmm. incident, the Black Street massacre, there are these reparations that people are that people descendants of the people from the massacre are getting to start businesses or really do whatever they would want to do with the money that of course gives people who are against the reparations reason to hate even more which sets up this really weird dynamic between characters so the policemen are getting hunted down by yeah. the Seventh Calvary. Yep. The seventh, seventh Calvary is, you know, basically the KKK and other masks. I believe that's said in the TV show. Yeah. So they're so, they're wearing the Rorschach masks. So Rorschach, yes. the the character from the the comic book and the film, they've essentially all are wearing a mask like he would wear. But yeah, you're right. They're they're essentially. The KKK, they're they're like a, a race hate group. The, very early on in the TV show, the end of the first episode, Judd Crawford, the chief of police in Tulsa, mm-hmm. gets hanged. Yeah. And the police believe that it was somebody from the 7th Cavalry, even though Sister Knight, played by Regina King, amazing job playing this character, by the way. She's, she's fantastic. I, she's one of those actresses that she's always been good. And it's just been like, when is she going to get the role where like she can really kind of shine? She knows better that the Seven Calvary, at least on the surface, didn't have anything to do with this. So the police are now rounding up people who are even suspected of being related to someone or knowing anything about the Seventh Calvary. Mm-hmm. So you turn a, a group in the Seventh Calvary who is a, a racist group. You turn the police into kind of a fascist state. So now there are no good guys in this scenario, right. which mirrors the Watchmen a lot, that there's there's just blood stains on everything. That is what makes me really interested about it. The, the falling cars, the, the robots, or the, you know, maybe going into space and freezing people and that kind of stuff. That's all fun window dressing. Yeah. The core of it, the like nugget of this, TV show is that like dichotomy between uh, the fascist state trying to hunt down the racist terrorists. It's th- that right there. I-, I love that dynamic, and that's what sure. I'm here for. Yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, and they're sort of they're they're doing all of that while sort of bringing in these little notes of of the Watchmen film. So in episode three, we are introduced to an FBI character. Uh, who basically she it it opens up like she's going to be robbing a bank and this 
vigilante superhero shows up it's almost like a riff on batman i mean he kind of he looks like Batman. yes he does he even kind of does like the christian bale growl (laughs) (laughs) and you know she reveals that she is an fbi agent and when he tries to run she ends up shooting him we learn shortly thereafter that that is silk specter that's that's one of the that's the one of the original uh watchmen who is now you know, on the FBI. And she is, she was very much in love with Dr. Manhattan when he went to Mars. And so it's 30 years after this. And so, you know, the, one of the things throughout the third episode is that she just like calls him from a payphone and like tells him jokes on Mars and she just leaves it on his voicemail. So she hasn't spoken to him in 30 years. She's obviously gone a very different route. You know, obviously the superhero thing is not what she's doing anymore. So I think it's fascinating to see the the racial side of things and then also to just sort of mesh in all these little just knickknacks from the comic book and the film with it too. It's it's just Again, it's, it's it hooked most of the time with a TV show. Three shows is what I'll give you. You know, if you if you you should hook me with with one episode, but I, I'm giving you three. So I was completely hooked off of episode one. But the fact that after the third episode, I'm still very much like, okay, like what's going to happen next? I, it's like I can't wait to see what they're doing next. Do you have any guesses about what's going on? My my kind of caveat with this show is that. Lindelof loves like putting little red herrings and things. Does the does is the politician involved with the Seventh Cavalry at all? You know, maybe there's a false flag going on. Then there's this newspaper. Do you have any idea? Do you have any any theories about what's happening? So I feel like Ozzy Mandias. I feel like he's up to his old tricks in some capacity. So. One of the things with that character is that he basically lives off completely alone and he is surrounded by, there's one female servant and numerous male servants that are all clones. He's so they're all very expendable clones. And you, you see that very thoroughly in the third episode, as you talked about, he tries to send someone into outer space and they come back frozen. And at one point he, he, makes these clones put on a stage play and like literally burns one alive in order to have the realism on stage. And so aside from that, I think what he, I I think in some capacity, he is trying to figure out how he can go to Mars to maybe stop Dr. Manhattan so that he can then come back and do what he initially planned to do. And he's using these clones in order to try and do that. So that's sort of my, theory with that and, and that's why the that's why the calamari is dropping from the sky that's right yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'll be fascinated to see so again the i guess the only thing the only answer i have is just what my thought is for ozzy mandias <laughs> that's the only thing there that i can kind of be like well i, th- I think that's where that's gonna go so again and that's good writing if you if you don't if you're not immediately like oh this is where it's gonna go then that's what hooks you in to make you want to tune in. You want to keep watching to see where it's going to go. I have one more question for you, Sean. Do you think that there was a blue Dr. Manhattan penis in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction when John Travolta (laughs) opened it up? 
Is that what, I, what was glowing in the briefcase? I think it was. I mean, he asks him, we happy? And what else could make <laughs> him happy except for a big blue penis? Chapter two. I have fought giants and bedded queens, but I don't know what the word dolomite means. Sean, did you ever imagine they would make a Dolomite movie, especially kind of a, a general audience Dolomite movie? I did not. <clears throat> and it's from the guys who wrote The People versus Larry Flint. And it's from the director of uh, Black Snake Moan and Hustle and Flow. So the director of Hustle and Flow, Black Craig Snake Brewer. Moan. Yeah. Craig Brewer, yes. So it's him directing and it's the. Uh, writers of People vs. Larry Flint, among many other things, they're really great writers. Yeah, I had no, I, I you know, black exploitation movies are long in the past. You know, that's something that you just don't really, you know, unless it's like Tarantino doing like Django Unchained, where it's black exploitation blended with western and blended with comedy. Uh, yeah, you, you could know. put Black Sn Snake Moon kind of in that. Blended yeah. genres. Yeah, black yeah. snake moan and, and even hustle and flow to a degree. It's got a like it's got elements of black exploitation, but rarely are we afforded the luxury of just a, a an all out like black exploitation movie. And uh, and that's not technically I guess technically that's not what Dolomite is my name is. It's a it's a, a biography about the making of a black exploitation movie. Uh, definitely, it it's is. it's definitely not a black exploitation movie. I should. You're right. It's a, it's a biopic. Yeah. Um, and I was, I guess I shouldn't have been, but I was expecting kind of a black exploitation movie. You know, the appeal, in my opinion, when I first saw Dolomite, the actual movie, was mm -hmm. like, oh man, this is something that no one wants me to see. You know, right. I was a teenager. This is going to have nudity and and violence and you know, I it, it was like it was like finding something that no one wanted me to find when I saw it. And this is a more general audience. Eddie Murphy kind of being likable um, yeah. on Netflix, you know. So I was coming into the movie maybe with a little bit more expectation of of the feeling that you get when you watch Dolomite, and I didn't get that in Dolomite as my name. Definitely, because it's the same way with me, and I'll just put this out there now i've seen a lot of black exploitation movies uh <laughs> i've i've watched maybe all that the 70s had to offer <laughs> i think I've, I've seen a bunch of them so when i when i was the same way when i saw the trailer for this i was kind of like okay like i i, I knew going into it's it gonna be like a making of but it definitely had vibes of it and you know the same thing with me i'm, I'm trying to remember what the first black exploitation movie I saw was because I've seen Dolmite, but I've not the first one I saw actually the first one I saw might have been Black Dynamite back in 2012, 2011. Okay. Uh, and that so that was a modern day when that was Michael J. White doing a modern day black exploitation, but it was kind of a comical approach. It was almost like it was it was like him and a group of friends, sort of like Dolmite is my name. They're making a, a film uh, that sort of 
it, it acknowledges and admires the black exploitation genre while having some fun with it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, black man going after, you know, Mr. White and all that, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Uh, but it was so funny. So I think when I saw that, I was like, oh man, like I, I loved seeing this. I want to go back and see what, what they're going for. And so that made me go back and, and just jump into all of these things from the seventies. And then Django and Chain came out and I saw some of the stuff that inspired that. And so I went and found all these old like black exploitation Westerns and watched those. Then of course, Pam Greer and Jackie Brown. And so I went back and watched all the Pam Greer movies. <laughs> so again, I've seen a, a lot of the, of that genre, you know, I, I Dolmite is my name as of right now is my second favorite movie this year. Uh, oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, I really, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I loved it. It's almost like the poor man's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very, you know, these actors who have had this long career, who are sort of seeing their way out of it in 1969. Dolmite is my name. Eddie Murphy is uh, Rudy Ray Moore as this guy who wants to find fame. He's just like, you know, whatever he's, he's tried doing music. He's tried doing stand-up comedy, you know, and he finds a little bit of success with his stand-up comedy and decides, you know, I want to, I want to make a movie off of it. He's like, let's in. So it's like him and a group of his friends pull together, like scrape the money together and just hold it together by glue and tape to make Dolmite. And so this is their journey. This is the journey of seeing like what each one of them brings. You have, he goes and finds a, a writer, a film or a stage play writer who writes the movie. He, uh, you know, is the one and that that's, kind of, that guy's played by Keegan, Michael key. Yes, Jerry, yes. Jerry Jones is the name in the movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and he's great. You know, again, this is a movie where they got some really talented actors and actresses for all of these roles. Craig Robinson is the musician. Mike Epps is, is one of the friends that helps out. You get, and, uh, you get a little bit of Wesley Snipes in there. Wesley Snipes on back making in, yeah. Making fun of his kung fu in the movie, which I thought was a hilarious bit. Where he's I did. like just, just in the movie, <laughs> pretending like you know how to do karate. I, I, love, <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, and, I thought that was, yeah, that was so great. What did you think of Eddie Murphy? It's hard it's to say. It's been a while. It's, oh, it's been a long while. And, you know, this was the movie that was that sort of brings him back. He's been, you know, kind of under the radar now for, for quite a few years. And and kind of the same thing with Wesley Snipes. You know, uh, you know, he's been doing like a lot of like straight to video stuff. It's hard to say that you could call it Eddie Murphy's like career best. It's up there. It's certainly up there among some of the best things I think that he's done. It's, you know, his performance is great. You know, his comedic timing has is, is never been better. But, you know, I, I think about, like, his performance in Dreamgirls, where he's not the lead. He's kind of a side character, but he's so good in that. And it's like, well, is, is this better than that? And it's, you know, it's it's apples and oranges there. But it's it's certainly among some of the the best work, I think, that he's done. I, I think it's certainly a film and a performance that he should be, and, and everyone involved should be immensely proud of. Because he's, he's really terrific in it. Man, I wish that I liked this movie as much as you did. I, yeah. I was I was really going into it. I was excited that he was going to use this material as his kind of coming back movie. I love Eddie Murphy and I didn't I didn't buy into it. Um I didn't really? believe 
Yeah. Eddie Murphy put on this effect in his voice that mm-hmm. I've heard him do before. It's kind of his, his like, I'm about to tell you a joke voice. And yeah. he uses that voice throughout the entire movie. Now, you can you can argue that uh, Rudy Ray Moore, even before he was Dolomite, was doing that exact thing, trying to get people to laugh, trying to entertain people in whatever way he could. And mm-hmm. I'll buy that. And, and let's let's say that I'm okay with the Eddie Murphy performance, although I don't think it it, it stacks up to uh, getting an award for acting kind of thing. Sure. But, okay. But above and beyond that, the writing in this movie just I I hated it. Uh, the what? characters oh no the, the, <laughs> the characters would state exactly what they were thinking the entire time eddie murphy would walk into um the movie producer's uh office and be like white people have been stealing money from black artists throughout history which is a very true statement sean but you yeah. show that in your movie you don't you don't say it out loud you show it in your movie <laughs> lady reed who I really like the actress who played Lady Reed, Div- mm-hmm. Divine Joy Randolph. Yeah. At one at one point, she turns to uh, Rudy Ray Moore and says, "Like, thank you so much. You gave me the oppor- this opportunity. I'm so thankful for it. I never see people who look like me on the screen." Again, very true statement. All for it. I understand where that character is coming from because she said it out loud in the very words that describe how she feels instead of showing us that admiration, uh, giving us the performance that I know that she can do. Those kind of things really stuck with me through this movie. And I thought it was just okay. I thought I thought it was there's a way that you could have made this movie feel like the way it feels when you watch a black exploitation movie. And they weren't even going for that. They weren't going for a a true biopic where, you know, not everybody's intentions are true. It seems like everybody's intentions. Every main character has the truest of intentions in this movie. With people like Chris Rock in it, Titus Burgess, who I really like, who I thought was not given the opportunity to perform up to his standard, I didn't see anything there that could make this movie great. Although it wasn't a bad two hours. I wasn't you know, upset that I watched the movie. I just didn't see anything that you are talking about and that other people have talked about that this movie could be a great movie. So I, I, I definitely get where you're coming from. I think... It's something where it's a it's a movie where if you've ever, especially with film, but if you've ever just wanted something so bad, it's just like, you know, what can you do to make it happen? In this case, it was making the movie and <clears throat> sorry, I got choked up there uh, and it was making the movie. This guy and just a small group of friends banded together and did it despite uh, Wesley Snipes is there he's an actor turned director for hire who does not want to be there you know the whole time he's kind of coked up and just he's just like yeah this movie's gonna be fucking terrible and all this (laughs) and it's you know it's it's hilarious because it's wesley snipes (laughs) and and he's great in it but you know even when they rap he's just like i'm gonna go make a real movie now he's like you know he's like i'll see y'all at the premiere with his organs hanging out of his stomach yeah, with his gut, with his fake guts hanging out, and then he's he like kind of gives him a slap on the face. He's like, "There's not going to be a premiere. Like this is this is never going to see the light of day." And to see that group of friends make it happen, 
I just found it to be very inspiring and just very sweet. And, you know, and stuff like that where she tells him, like, thank you for, for casting me and putting me up there. You know, like, yeah, it's it's a little cornball. You can forgive it if you want to. You can certainly yeah, forgive it if you want I, to. I, and I do, yeah. I, I have to, you know, it's a little cornball at times, but it was just such a charming, like, sweet movie all around. think I might approach it again because it's your second favorite movie of the year. People are praising it left and right, and maybe I missed something. Certainly possible. I, I think when, when it comes out, I actually think double bill it with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I think that both films are very sweet in their nature, and it just shows that sort of era. You know, Hollywood's 1969. This was in the late 70s. So, you know, watch it, watch those two back to back is just the people that sort of wanted to work and, and sort of dreamed about making movies at that time. Well, that'd be like five hours, but <laughs> that's, a fun, that's a fun day. It'd be a fun half of your life. I might do that, Sean, uh, on your recommendation because I. I like I I like that we disagree um, on sure. this podcast because there's too many podcasts where people are like, yeah, this was great. Yeah, I agree. It was great. Chapter three. It's unlucky to kill a seabird. Sean, I think you owe me eight dollars for having to go see that. I'm, I'm, I know that it was just a suggestion of yours, but I spent good money to go see this movie, and we we can get into the lighting, we can get into the way that the 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 cinematography was shot, um, which I, those things were very good. The weird aspect ratio. The, those types of decisions were good. Sure. Why do I care about this movie, Sean? What? What? <laughs> why do I care about anybody in this movie? So, I'm I'm still sort of processing this because I just saw this last night, and it's one of those that I've heard. Just you know, I've heard some people that like really did not like it, and then I've heard some people that are like, "Oh, it's a masterpiece." And as I mentioned before, The Witch is one of my favorite horror films of the past 10 years. Like I, I went into that, I came out of that movie and I was just in awe at how much I enjoyed it and how, how well it built suspense, how good the performances were. I, I really loved it. So I went into this going, okay, like it's the same filmmaker. It's a, obviously a much smaller cast and a much small, it's one location. To, it's ba- essentially two cast members. It's Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe for the whole two hours. Yeah, if you don't and... count the seagull or the mermaid yeah. or the the blonde guy who I assume is the guy that he killed on the on the logging truck. Yes. Yeah, that's what I got. I I'm neutral with this movie right now and I think to, uh, upon a rewatch my thoughts on it are either going to like really go up or they're going to really go down <laughs> because just uh, upon my first watch of it I liked it. I, I enjoyed all of the creative aspects like you're talking about, the f- the four to three ratio, the black and white cinematography, and just kind of how uh, grainy it looks. The performances there are top notch. I think my friend that I saw it with, I, t- I told her, I was like, that's actually the first time I think I've actually been really 
wowed by Robert Pattinson. You know, I don't think he's a bad actor, but everyone sort of equates him to the Twilight movies and all that. And so, you know, I've not I've not seen Good Time and some of these other more like serious roles he's done recently. And so this was like, I guess, one of the first ones. And I was really pleasantly surprised at how good he is in it. And of course, Willem Dafoe is is fantastic. William Defoe is on twelve and a half in this he movie. Is. He is. He is basically an old haymakers. sea captain. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's like an old drunk sea captain for all of it. <laughs> and and he was. I enjoyed the performance, especially because he was acting beside Robert Pattinson, who I entirely disagree. I hated his performance. His accent went in and out. It was like a a poor man's when i say poor man i mean a a broken man in the in the gutter starving to death he's a, was a poor man's daniel plainview oh. um j- just like just you know the best thing he did in this movie was the masturbation scenes that's the best thing robert <laughs> pattinson did in this movie holy um, shit <laughs> William, my but god I would have loved to have seen his character. Give me an ensemble here. Like, give me people, give me a straight man to play off of him. But I, the biggest thing was you have to, if you're going to give me a narrative movie, which this is a narrative movie, yeah. it, however artsy you want to get with it, the lighting was amazing. I love the old style framing of the faces when people talked. Mm-hmm. Um, re- reminded me a lot of like the Mal- Maltese Falcon, but I have to care for these characters, Sean. You have to give me a reason to care. Even Daniel Plainview, horrible person, had ambition, like had a reason to to be. Yeah. Um, uh, Freddie Quill, who I have problems with that character in The Master. He sure. was the it, he was the id for a religion. He was, you know, there was a reason to be invested in what was happening there. And right. Robert Pattinson's like. I don't know, man. I was working in the log farm first. I really don't know what I want or where I'm going, which may be like a a true thing in life. Gives me no reason to care whether he lives or dies or kills a Willem Dafoe. So, yeah, that totally, I, I definitely can see that argument. That makes a lot of sense. For me, I think it was that they're, they obviously don't get along. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's like boomers and millennials. And I'm allowed to say that that's becoming a curse word now from what I understand. But it's it's the old man and the young man just kind of constantly bickering, you know. But they start to sort of form this friendship throughout before they start bickering again. You know, I didn't mind that aspect of it that, you know, I, I didn't necessarily... I didn't want to see Willem Dafoe get killed. Like, you know, like whether I liked him or not, I liked that character. I, I thought that character was so like sassy. It's like the old, as <laughs> the old sea captain that it's like, I want to see him go for another four weeks in this lighthouse. Like, so, you know, get Pattinson out of there and send someone else in to kind of deal with his shenanigans. Uh, All right. Put in, uh, what's her name? Kristen uh, Stewart. Yeah. The yeah. other one from the. <laughs> yeah. Send in the werewolf <laughs> kid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever. Yeah. Where it kind of started to lose me was in the third act. I thought that it's really started to, the director started to kind of overload me with what he was trying to show me. And I started to get a little restless. I, I thought that it went on a little bit too long. Uh, and, you know, again, like the last 30 minutes or so, 
it was like it was like a fever dream essentially which is fine i've seen other movies that i can equate to a fever dream but with this one it got to a point where i was like okay like what am i watching here like what like it's it got to a point where i was like i'm not sure what's happening anymore i don't know if this is a dream i don't know if this is reality because he just kind of kept pushing it and pushing it you know I, to me it was just a little too much and you you have to establish a reason to care before he goes into insanity you have to right like i have to really want to know what happens when he breaks into the light in the lighthouse and right like all I could think of while he was crawling up these stairs to get up to this light is like, man, I need him to get to this light so that this movie can end. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was kind of in the same boat, especially by that point. I was just like, okay, like whatever is in this lighthouse that has had him transfixed this whole time. It's like, let's get up there and let's see it so that we can, we can kind of wrap this up. And of course, you don't see what's in the lighthouse. It's, you know, whatever's in the light, it, it's, it's kind of like the, the Pulp Fiction briefcase. You know, he, he opens it up and it, you know, just has him in awe. I also it, remi- not- it reminded me of the Indiana Jones light that'll like melt you to your yes. skeleton. Do you know what I'm right. talking about? Yeah, that's what yeah. it, it reminded me of a little yeah, bit. Yeah, where it melts all the Nazis. That's sort of, yeah, that's kind of what it was like. But, yeah, and uh, putting that logic on that part of the movie because it's yeah. it evolved so much, and it's a fool's errand. But I understand why you're doing it because we were established in a movie with characters that you right. believe, at least in some circumstance, are real. The director abandons all that by the end of the movie in order to kind of show us his prowess, show us um, the 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 mind devolving. And I guess how, how much alcohol can affect you and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, if you want to, you can put in all these tropes and you can tell me how it's a reflection of gods and maybe even like carnal sin. But if you didn't give me a reason to come with you on this journey at the very beginning, then there's no reason for me to believe you when you imbue those types of things. on. Right. And I, I, I had a discussion last night with a, a friend of mine about what the movie means because it's it's very I think open to interpretation. I think that every you know everyone that sees it's going to have something slightly different that they get out of it. And so for me, when I watched it, I looked at it as the same viewpoint from The Witch, where it's about sort of a, a descent into madness due to isolation. That you know, in in this case. It's these two guys getting hammered drunk, complete, you know, completely isolated at this lighthouse, you know, on a, on a rock island somewhere. And they sort of like lose their sense of time. They're only supposed to be out there for four weeks. And then Robert Pattinson, obviously, uh, Willem Dafoe tells him, like, don't mess, don't mess with the gulls. You know, like that's those are old sailors whose souls have gone into these birds. He's like, and it's bad luck to mess with them. And. Robert Pattinson sort of duels with these birds a couple of times before he <laughs> kills one. You know, he's just like just you know, slams it up against a rock like the the monkey in space odyssey. Just like <laughs> exactly, keeps yeah. slamming up against a rock. And in doing so, that brings on a pretty bad storm that essentially 
strands them out there for much longer than anticipated. And so they, they just start losing their sense of time. And that in itself is supposed to draw to drive Robert Pattinson's character insane because at this point he you know it's just him and Willem Dafoe fighting almost every single day he's you know Willem Dafoe's doing the easy job of looking after the lighthouse while he's doing all of the labor so it's just the descent into madness due to isolation you know like it it felt like nothing I'd seen in quite a while and for me it actually reminded me a lot of Night of the Hunter and maybe it's because the whole thing was underwater but uh right I mean that's that was sort of what I was thinking of when i was watching it but yeah this director owes paul thomas anderson some money for having his characters drink things that aren't alcohol in order for themselves in order for them to get drunk and then masturbating in water yeah Um, to the to the outline of uh to the outline of a mermaid which is kind of exactly what happens in the master it really is the master but on a lighthouse brady quill is back uh yeah, and yeah. and I could tell you, or I could suppose that the Willem Dafoe character never really existed. That Robert Pattinson had, had actually killed him as the like second in command that that Willem Dafoe was supposed to have killed. When mm-hmm. you see the head in the basket, whether or not that's a hallucination or not, it kind right. of looks like Willem Dafoe. I, yeah, um, I thought that too. You know, I you could suppose all these things and infer it because it's madness, because it's alcoholism. But before we do any of that, you have to give me a reason why I care, and I just never got it in this movie. The I would do want to say though, the lighting, the cinematography, and the aspect ratio, I thought lended themselves really well to a movie that didn't live up to it. And and I think I'm like again, I'm neutral with it. I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it. I, I, there were there were a lot of things about it that I really appreciated and admired. I think for me, it was just in that last third where I was just like, okay, like you know, it's almost like it kind of goes off the rails. And I was like, all right, like let's try to rope it back in a little bit. And he never did. And I, you know, my friend that saw it, he kind of had his theories about what had happened and, and what what he got from it because he loved it. He said it was one of his favorites of the year, but yeah, he, I mean, he was really like, he actually, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this brief, but one of the things that he said that he, that he took from it that I thought was an interesting take was that Robert Pattinson was actually the one that just sort of gets killed numerous times because his name throughout sort of keeps changing and whatnot. And so Willem Dafoe is the boss that the hired hand you know, he doesn't ever really remember them. They're all kind of the same. And so that was what his takeaway was, was that Pattinson was actually the one who just kind of gets killed over and over again. What, what? fresh what? nonsense. What <laughs> fresh nonsense. I just, again, if you would if you would establish something that would make me want to know, then we could talk about it. But I, it sure. was just never established there. Yeah. You know, um, I had my wife's uh, voice in my head the entire time, just like, why? Why? Yeah. yeah. It, again, it's one. It's we're... one that I. I think I'll be able to submit some feelings upon rewatching it when it comes out on Blu-ray. It's not one I. I think I could sit through again on the, at the theater. Uh, but upon a rewatch, I think my thoughts on it are either gonna like skyrocket. I'm gonna be like, man, this is really great, and we'll have another episode where we talk about it. Or I'm gonna watch it again and be like, "Man, this is a shit show." Uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't care to see it ever again. 
Yeah, and, well, uh, while while you're rewatching it, I'm going to try to do a de-watch where I, <laughs> I do not watch this sh- movie just ever. Just so completely ever. forget about it. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter four. The best is yet to come. Time is gone. The song is over. Thought I had something more to say. Thank God, Sean. There are there are more movies in the universe. There's there are. more stuff for us to talk about. I'm I'm really excited as the as the winter as fall ends as winter comes in. I've got I'm really excited about some stuff that's about to drop. Yeah, I know that the the Irishman is in some select theaters now. The Irishman is the new Martin Scorsese movie. Is it is uh-huh. it in Austin at all? It starts in Austin uh, this coming weekend and next week. I don't know how long it's going to be in theaters, but I am patiently waiting for my schedule at the Alamo to drop so that I can figure out what day I'm going to buy a ticket for it. Because I've heard it's a masterpiece, so I'm very excited to see it. And especially with all the the discourse around him and, and Marvel films the past couple of weeks, uh, I'm very, very inclined to see what Professor Scorsese is going to deliver to us uh, this year with the Irishman, I can't wait. Yeah, all right. So he said <laughs> that Marvel films are not cinema, basically, right? Yeah. He, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't want I don't want to misquote him, but that's basically what he said. Is that As, uh, that's essentially yeah, that's the gist of it. He he basically equated Marvel films to theme parks, but they're for like two or three weeks now. It's just been nonstop on people going after him. Francis Ford Coppola came out and, and called the films despicable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, was... these, that's my favorite part about this. Both yeah. sides are probably wrong. Like both sides, you know, yeah. he shouldn't be shouting at the kids on his lawn. Yeah. And I don't care what the comic the, book kids have to say. Yeah. The but kids I just love that toilet they're paper they're house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. So we're, I believe we'll have an episode uh, in the future about the Irishman. I mean, I'm sure. really excited to yeah. watch it as well. It's like three and a half hours. We may need like a full episode to just break that. Oh, apart. for sure. We're going to deep dive uh, into that one. Yeah. Next week, uh, a filmmaker named Michael Helms that we both know. You went to school with Michael, right? Uh, I Well, I went to high school with him. And then we also went to film school together. So I've known Michael for a lot of years now. He's a great writer, director. Uh, has a very unique vision and whatnot, and so yeah, he's made, he's actually went out and did everything on this. He wrote it, directed it, produced it, shot the thing, cut it together. It's a short film, design. yeah. Called, it's a short called film. the White Paper. Yeah, and he, yeah, and he, like he, he said, he he was a jack of all trades on this movie. He was a one man unit. So uh, yeah. I've seen it, I've seen it, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about it with him on the show. I think it'll be a cool episode uh, to to talk about something smaller like that too for for sure and the process that goes into it that's what i'm really excited yeah. talking to michael about in the next episode of the swift shift thank you so much for listening please remember to subscribe rate us hopefully a high rating as we talked about before <laughs> if you're gonna rate it low just leave it alone you know what yeah. I mean? Um, You're going to have a lot of White House fans uh, (laughs) clicking the three stars instead of five. 
Yeah, I shared the Lighthouse movie theater with like two other people. So br bring on the Lighthouse fans. Uh, please, if you want to follow when the episodes drop, we, we're doing this thing now where we're going to tell you what we're going to cover in the episode before we drop the episode that so that you know what's going on. You can follow it at the 85 pod, either on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, Sean W. Swift. I am back on uh, Facebook again after a couple of months of, of hiatus. So I'm back on there. It just says Sean, S-H-A-U-N-S-W-I-F-T. And you can find me on Twitter uh, at Sean Swift 5. Perfect. Well, this has been the Swift Shift. What? 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 what?